Hey, Bettys. Welcome to the Better Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Stephanie. It is geeky magic time where I step away from the interviews and just talk to you. It's just going to be me and you today. And these episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, topic du jour in a more condensed, quick, and actionable way. I go hard on the geek, wrap it up with sprinkles and magic for you to do and be better. Hey, Bettys. I wanted to talk this geeky magic with you around the thyroid. And we'll talk about this in the context of what the thyroid does and its role in the body. And I also want to talk about it in the context of the ketogenic diet, because I hear a lot of women and even, you know, researchers, um, and there's some data to suggest in the literature that the ketogenic diet can negatively in, uh, impact, uh, thyroid function, particularly in women. And I want to address some of those things based on what the data says, what the literature says, and some clinical observations that I have made around um, women who are, that are attracted to the ketogenic diet, who may be implementing it, um, and maybe not making some of the nuances um, and alterations to their diet that they should be in order to support the thyroid. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms, and here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. So before we get into that juiciness, I do want to just talk about what the thyroid is involved in. And, you know, for the most part, there are, when we're talking about thyroid function and some of the abnormalities that can happen as a result of thyroid function, we're usually talking about hypothyroid. So there's two, well, I guess there's three. We have normal, optimal thyroid function, uh, which is not the subject of today, although I am going to give you some tips and tricks on how to get there. But when we talk about aberrations in thyroid function, we're talking about either hyper or hypo. So hyper is when the thyroid is working. Uh, there is a, an amplification of thyroid function. These individuals usually have a hard time gaining any weight. They can seemingly eat whatever they want and never you know, put on any weight. In the extreme, uh, we will see things like bulging eyes. And that's not normally the type of thyroid conditions that I see, uh, it's usually the opposite. It's usually the opposite issue, which is a lot of women have a hard time maintaining a healthy weight without gaining, right? Their metabolism is very low. Their thyroid function is hypothyroid, meaning that the thyroid is not functioning in the way that it should in an optimal way. 
Now, of course, there's a lot of reasons why um, metabolism can be low. We are going to explore today how thyroid hormone and, you know, what I would consider its sister growth hormone, you know, arguably two parallel systems in the body that are very significant for setting your overall level of metabolism. And I think it's important when we, when we talk about metabolism to define what it is. A lot of people think about metabolism in the context of weight loss and weight gain. And certainly that's a part of it, but metabolism in general is your ability to use energy to be able to take substrate from, you know, endogenous or exogenous sources. So in the diet or your own body reserves and be able to use that in the cell. So whether that is for the creation of ATP, so for the creation of energy, for growth of tissue. So having it, you know, an anabolic state, whether that's must, you know, muscle tissue and repair, uh, joint and ligament repair, organ repair, keeping the brain nice and thick and juicy. It's really for, um, the maintenance and, and optimization of our body in general. That's what metabolism is. And when we think about metabolism in this context, you can very quickly see that there are going to be certain areas of the body that are going to be, um, we'll say, um, metabolic hogs, right? They're really greedy. One of them, uh, as you maybe have guessed, is the brain. And the brain is what I would definitely call a metabolic hog. Um, if you were to just sit in bed all day and do absolutely nothing, that is going to consume upwards of 75 to 80% of your metabolic needs for the day. And that is um, you know, akin to your basal metabolic rate, how much calories you burn at rest. And, you know, of course, if you have, most of us don't sit in bed all day. You know, if we get up and we make breakfast and we go to work and maybe we have workouts and we go for walks and we walk our dog and we play with our children, there you are now going to, on top of your basal metabolic rate, you are going to have a multiple of that BMR based on how active you are. And that's what is called our total daily energetic expenditure. So, you know, and this includes, I mean, anything that you can think, like if you're breastfeeding, if you're carrying your kids around, if you're, you know, all of these different things, you're going to be burning more energy. You're going to be burning more calories in order to just survive. And nerves and the brain are glucose hogs. So when we think about thyroid hormone as it's related to metabolism, we want to think about it in the context of how efficient is thyroid hormone. And we'll talk about the active and inactive forms in just a moment, but how proficient is this gland and the system involved in it at helping our organs, our tissues, our glands, our cells take up energy and use it for either reparation or anabolism and the balance of that anabolic and catabolic um, activity. So it's not, and I, I, the, the driver that I'm trying to make here is that metabolism 
isn't just about losing weight. And we want to, we want to talk today about how optimal metabolism is going to be facilitated through the thyroid gland and its mechanisms. We'll talk briefly about growth hormone as well. So what does the thyroid do? So it's very true. Uh, I sort of mentioned a couple of facial facial features. Um, you know, if you have hyperthyroidism, we can see things like bulging eyes, very lean muscle mass, uh, sorry, lean body mass, pardon me. Uh, hypothyroid, of course, we can see sunken eyes. We can see a drooping of the face. There's a lot of actually facial features that you can derive, you know, in just if you're a clinician who is observing her patient, you can start to make a clinical picture based on the appearance of the individual, facial features. What we want to be thinking about clinically when someone is presenting potentially with a low functioning or hypothyroid, there are going to be a lot of signs and symptoms that may come up. So I'm going to kind of go through a couple of them and you may have one or more of these. This is not to alarm you in any way. And I'll also just pre-frame this by saying that there are a lot of other conditions that have overlapping symptoms. So just because you've, you know, fit two or three or more of these doesn't, is not diagnostic for hypothyroidism or aberrant thyroid function. This does need to be um, looked at in a lab. And I'm going to talk to you about some labs that I really like to run uh, for women and men when we're, when we're thinking about thyroid function. So one of the classic hallmarks of uh, low thyroid or poor thyroid function is, of course, feeling tired, right? Um, or the feeling of, of feeling worn out. And as I've mentioned, thyroid hormone controls energy balance, right? So it can influence whether you feel ready to go or ready to take a nap. And people with low thyroid always, they often will feel sluggish. They will often feel exhausted. They will often feel unrested even with proper sleep hygiene habits. So the first line of defense here from a clinical perspective is going to always be doubling down on sleep hygiene, but you'll often find with our, you know, our women and men with low thyroid function that even with proper sleep hygiene habits, and that's to say that they're getting to bed early, that they're limiting their blue light, that they are practicing time-restricted eating, and that they're allowing the stomach to empty before they go um, to sleep. And um, maybe they're nasal breathing, maybe they're getting you know early morning light, maybe they're taking naps midday, that this fatigue is unrelieved by naps, okay? The other thing, of course, is that uh, gaining weight might also be a symptom that a woman uh, or man might complain about. And of course, when your thyroid levels are low, you know, instead of burning calories for growth and activity, the amount of energy that you use at rest, your basal metabolic rate is going to decrease. And as a result, your body will tend to store, tend to store more calories from the diet as, as adipose tissue. So even in a eucaloric state, even when your calories remain constant, um, low thyroid function can cause somebody to begin to, um, 
to gain weight. And we, we see this a lot with age and we'll talk about the effect of age because one of the things that we know is that if you are not taking prophylactic measures like strength training and appropriate rest and recovery, as we age, our thyroid function naturally will decrease. And this will also sort of compound that in that it will, it will increase your tendency to put on adipose tissue uh, versus lean muscle um, as well. Feeling cold. This is another one. Um, when we think about heat, right, it's a byproduct of, of burning calories. So when you work out, for example, um, you probably feel warm, right? This is because you are burning calories. You know, your your core body temperature is raised, whether you are doing resistance training or high intensity interval training or cardio or what have you. Um, heat is a byproduct of burning calories. And you may also notice this if you are a woman in her menstrual years, around ovulation, right? Or right before you get your period. If you are tracking either with a basal body, uh, if you're taking thermometer readings, like doing a BBT, basal body temperature readings, or even if you are, you have monitoring devices like wearables, like my aura, I mean, I love aura, but it always dings me right around ovulation. And right before I get my period, why? Because my, it'll tell me, Hey, you're, you're warm. Like you must be overworked. And it's like, well, aura, love you, wear you, but no, it's just my cycle. (laughs) So for women are temperature will spike around ovulation because there is a frenzied, um, you know, around ovulation specifically, we are seeing the developed follicle. There's one at this point, right? Pre-ovulation. And we see a surge in estradiol followed by a surge in luteinizing hormone. I actually talked about this quite uh, in detail in my menstrual masterclasses, one, two, three, and four. Uh, But you'll find this particular detail in week two. So you can go back to listen to my geeky magic on that. Uh, And then again, right before your period, you will also notice a spike in your temperature. So women will often complain, uh, especially if they are running estrogen dominant, that they're, um, you know, that they feel warm overnight, that they have, you know, there's more sleep disturbances due to this core body temperature uh, change. And these spikes in temperature are your metabolism increasing. So for a woman with hypothyroid function, um, your basal metabolic rate will decrease and that will reduce the amount of heat that you generate. And so you will often feel more cold in the extremities, uh, hands, feet, and just generally overall. Now, I am somebody who I would consider to have optimal metabolism, to have optimal hormone health, and I am also cold. And that is more of a function, not of my thyroid, but more of just my general adipose, you know, tissue percentage. Um, so this is again, not diagnostic, but it is in aggregate of the clinical presentation as well as the labs that you might run. So that would be those, you know, top three, I would say, in addition, uh, a woman with hypothyroid function will also, um, have weakness and aches in her muscles and joints. And that's because we don't, we are flipping the balance of anabolic to catabolic activity. So anabolism is when we are growing or, you know, there's reparation of tissues. And as I mentioned before with thyroid, if it is hypo uh, functioning, so there's an attenuation in thyroid function, then we have this metabolic 
flip, if you will, or switch or preference towards more catabolic activity where the body will break down tissue. So that could be in the bone, in the muscle, in the joint, in the ligaments, in the tendons for energy. And of course, you know, in that catabolic state, your muscle uh, you know, total volume of muscle will decrease. Your strength of your muscles will decrease. Your power output will increase. Your bone density will decrease. Joint integrity will decrease as well. And that can lead to just general aches and pains and sort of feelings of weakness. Of course, what we also know, and this is something that I've observed clinically, is people who have low thyroid function will actually get things like muscle cramps and joint aches and feel like their bones are aching in the absence of recent activity. So for example, I did just a monster, like a beast of a leg workout yesterday and man, am I feeling it? Am I feeling it today? So I have aches and pains in my muscles, um, but I know why it's, it's happening. It's because I did just an insane amount of repetitions and an insane amount of rate, uh, reps during, uh, weights during those reps as well. But a hypothyroid patient will say, Hey, I haven't done anything out of the ordinary. And I have this, uh, kind of rhabdomyolysis and they might not say that word. That's just the word that means kind of muscle weakness, um, generally or systemically as well. And a couple other things just to round it out, hair loss, very common in a hypothyroid individual. So we will see, normally what we should see is about a hundred hairs or so, um, you know, falling out of our head naturally per day. Um, you will see a, a patient with hypothyroid will say like, I have gobs and gobs of hair falling out. We will also see in more severe cases, the outer third of the eyebrow, you'll also see that will be um, uh, rescinding as well. And that's because low thyroid will cause our hair follicles to stop regenerating, right? So it puts them into that dormant state. I've also done a whole geeky magic on hair growth. So you can go back and find that as well. And the good news about this, and I know that hair, you know, hair on our head, hair on our eyebrows, like we just, we all just want our, you know, eyebrows, just like our wallet, right? Full. <laughs> and for women, this can be very much a sign of our femininity, right? It's like full head of hair, you know, beautiful eyebrows. The good news about this is as our thyroid function improves, that we will often see a, a very robust restoration of hair loss, uh, whether it's through the eyebrows, you know, the hair on your head or elsewhere in the body as well. Um, low thyroid function, even along with low T, I should say, low testosterone, we see loss of le loss of leg hair, loss of armpit hair, loss of pubic hair as well. So if you're noticing those things, that could be due to one of many things, but it could also be around uh, hypothyroid as well. And then, um, you know, feeling down or depressed, trouble concentrating or remembering, these are brain-based changes. And one of the current theories around depression is that it is a disease of inflammation. So, you know, for years, and I, I still think it's widely, you know, there's a medical consensus today around the monoamine um, hypothesis around depression, which is to say that um, we don't have enough serotonin uh, either hanging around in the synaptic 
cleft, which is the kind of space between each neuron. Hence the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, which are basically, um, they allow, they inhibit the enzyme that degrades serotonin in the cleft. So they allow serotonin to hang around longer. That's sort of been the, uh, the predominant theory around depression. And I would highly recommend you go back to the pod earlier. I believe it was last year. I spoke to Dr. Kelly Brogan, uh, who's a psychiatrist around this. And she just, um, basically shreds that, uh, theory. But one of the current theories around depression is that it is a brain, there is brain based inflammation. And while, you know, we certainly don't necessarily, there are many reasons why we can maybe, uh, hypothesize around, you know, what's happening with depression. Um, when we look at um, global inflammation, and this includes the brain, it is a result of an overall decrease in energy, an overall decrease in the immune system's ability to take up energy and use it effectively. So if you are in a chronic state of low-grade inflammation, very um, often your immune system is already working at a baseline that is higher than it should be. So your your immune system cannot be as vigilant um, as it can, uh, you know, if there's other invading pathogens, bacteria, viruses, et cetera. Um, so it will cause this, uh, you know, it can cause mood alterations as well. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And then trouble concentrating, like I mentioned, um, and remembering as well, again, brain based. So, um, when we think about the areas of the brain that are involved in learning, in focusing and remembering, we are talking about the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, and we're also talking about the hippocampus. Um, so this is, um, you know, this kind of mental fogginess will vary from person to person, but again, another mechanism to potentially suggest, you know, broad systemic inflammation through the brain as well, that is altering the, um, the energy, uh, modulation in some of these very important brain centers. And then the last thing I want to mention as a specific to women, um, is the irregular, uh, menstrual cycle, um, that we see. So hypothyroid patients, uh, so patients with low thyroid function, we will also see very often, not all the time, but often enough, uh, you know, at a rate of, you know, I would guess like 40 to 50% of the time that women will increase, they'll, they'll experience like menstrual, like an increase in menstrual irregularity and or heavy bleeding. So in their bleed week, they will experience uh, higher than normal um, 
uh, higher than normal bleed week. And that can be a corollary with low thyroid um, function. So what do we do? Okay. So you're listening to some of these and you're like, hot damn, that's me. <laughs> um, like I said, we want to make sure that what, you know, the clinical presentation is not um, low testosterone, which has a lot of these common symptoms as well. Uh, anemia, again, has a lot of overlap in these symptoms. Um, so we want to be, we want to make sure that we're getting blood work to either rule in or rule out. So this is where, this is something that clinicians will call a differential, right? We want to have differential diagnosis. We want to be able to say, okay, so here are the clinical presentations. Here are the symptoms that overlap with some of these different things. Cause it's not cookie cutter, like, oh, she's hair loss. Oh, it's definitely tea. You know, could not, it could absolutely not be that. Uh, it could just be that you, um, have been dealing with the forest fires in California and you're stressed as all hell. And maybe you are, uh, you know, moving and you are, you know, you're fighting with your husband, you know, it could just, and I say just not, not in a, um, reductionary way, but that could also be why your hair is not as full and robust, um, as it should be. So when we want to think about evaluating the thyroid. So we're going to assume here that we have ruled out anemia. We've looked at ferritin levels. We're, we've done maybe like a Dutch test and we know what your testosterone levels are like. Uh, maybe we've looked at some of your, um, metabolic, uh, factors that, uh, cardiometabolic factors that may help us rule in or rule out global systemic inflammation. And those might be things like an HSCRP. We may look at a lipid profile. So we may look at your HDLs. We may look at your total cholesterol, your LDLs, your LDLP, uh, et cetera. So let's assume that we've ruled those out and now we're going to look for some thyroid. We're going to look for some information on the lab for thyroid. Well, there's many things um, that we want to consider. So often the standard of care is to just look at uh, TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, um, and and maybe T4 as well. We want to look a little bit broader than that for the thyroid. So we definitely want to be looking at thyroid stimulating hormone. So anytime you hear stimulating hormone or releasing hormone, if there's any word and then it's followed by stimulating hormone or releasing hormone, it's coming from the brain, right? So if your, um, th so thyroid stimulating hormone is released from your pituitary, right? If your TSH is high, it's kind of like your brain, like shouting at your thyroid. It's like, Hey, do you not hear me? Like I need you to work. And you know, thyroid doesn't respond. And then TSH is like, all right, I just need to shout a little bit louder. Right. So high TSH, um, has, uh, been, uh, when we see high TSH and that's the only marker that we're looking at, of course, that can lead to, um, higher, uh, pardon me, hypo, or it's often the case that we have a hypo functioning thyroid. But when we're looking at just TSH and maybe total T4 and free T4, we also want to, especially with a hypothyroid patient, all almost, you know, upwards of 70 to 80% of the time, we're all a hypothyroid patient is on the spectrum for autoimmunity. So we also want to be looking at, we want to look at total T4, free T4, total T3, 
uh, free T3. We also want to look at reverse T3, which is um, basically a mirror of, so T3 is our active hormone. Sorry, I didn't mention this before. T3 is active, T4 inactive. Um, Reverse T3 is also inactive. It is an unusable form of thyroid hormone. So we will always produce some of it. It is basically a mirror to active T3 and usually elevated with chronic stress, right? So chronic hypercortisolemia can raise levels of reverse T3. But importantly, and this is kind of the point that I'm trying to drive home here, is you want to also look at thyroid autoantibodies. So so an antibody or autoantibody, auto coming from the Greek word aftos, meaning self. So antibodies against the self. This is when the body mistakenly attacks the thyroid as a foreign uh, agent. Interestingly, also, um, when we look at, so I'll I'll talk about um, gluten, I'll talk about uh, lectins in a moment, but interestingly, um, we often see women and men with hypothyroid function. We often see leaky gut, so hyperintestinal hyperpermeability um, in the gut, uh, where we have these gap junctions that have loosened up over time. And so now you're able to get, you know, parasites and viruses and pathogens and food particles passing from the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. Um, and particularly with gluten, uh, the protein, uh, is called gliadin. And when you look at the chemical structure of gliadin, it looks very similar to the uh, cells of the thyroid. Also looks very similar to the um, cells of the cerebellum as well, which is basically the mini brain attached to your, uh, to your, you know, cortex. Uh, and it's a coordinator of movement. So it helps to coordinate movements. That's why if you've ever seen anybody or you yourself have been stopped by, you know, um, uh, an officer and they've asked you to walk the line and, or, you know, close your eyes and touch your finger to your nose, they're testing your cerebellum because your cerebellum is very, uh, sensitive to, um, uh, to alcohol. But often if you have, uh, that's another topic, uh, for another day, but, um, often when you have, um, uh, a leaky gut, you are also going to have a corresponding, um, quote unquote leaky brain. And what I mean by that is a leaky blood brain barrier. And your blood brain barrier is like this epithelial lining that creates this neuroprotective barrier from the, from the body to the rest of the brain. And the brain actually has its own immune system. But when that, um, that lining has been, uh, 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 compromised, then we can also see things like, uh, the gliadin, uh, uh, kind of passing through and causing, you know, uh, massive problems, um, in the brain, specifically in the cerebellum. So, let me get back on track here and talk about autoantibodies. Uh, so uh, things that you want to ask your doctor to look for are two of them. One is called TPO. So it's thyroid peroxidase. Um, and the other one is thyroglobulin antibodies. So obviously the ideal amount is zero, but there is sort of an upper toler- tolerable limit 
And if you have the presence of these autoantibodies, um, I mean, we all have to some degree, but if you sort of have passed that optimal, um, so for example, for TPOs, um, my, my optimal range is somewhere between zero and, uh, and 15. And my thyroglobulin uh, optimal range is between zero and 0.9. Like you really don't want those in circulation. But if you're picking up something higher than that, um, then you really want to be um, considering that there is some degree, depending on the severity of both the clinical symptoms and the lab work of this auto antibody process that's happening. Um, I would probably do other tests as well. Like I'd always want to look at, you know, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, HbA1c, total cholesterol, triglycerides, all, you know, vitamin D, B12, all of those things. Um, but some of the things that you can do uh, very easily to help support your thyroid um, is, and this is going to sound a little crazy, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, is to salt your food. <laughs> and if you have been listening to my podcast for a while, you know, I sort of have labeled three components um, that have been demonized by sort of mainstream medicine, which I disagree with. One is cholesterol, right? Your doctor sees the total cholesterol of, let's say it's north of 300. And they just absolutely freak out, even though they haven't looked at, you know, LP little a, they haven't done a coronary uh, artery and calcium score. They haven't looked at the ratios of triglycerides to HDL. They haven't looked at the ratio of HDL to LDL. They just like freak the shit out because they've seen cholesterol. Absolutely meaningless in and of itself, by the way. So we are all so concerned about having our cholesterol levels elevated. That's one. Another one is estrogen. And this is in the context of hormone replacement therapy, right? We all, or maybe you're not familiar with the Women's Health Initiative, but Women's Health Initiative cut short. They're like, estrogen's bad. It's going to give you a heart attack, right? So we got cholesterol causing heart attacks. We got estrogen causing heart attacks. Um, and we have salt causing heart attacks, right? How often have we heard, you know, low sodium diet, that's going to improve your, um, you know, your arterial ability to, uh, you know, to vasodilate or to vasoconstrict patently false. Um, salt has been unnecessarily demonized. And what, of course, when we are consuming salt, we are consuming iodine. Now the thyroid needs iodine in order to produce its thyroid hormones. And this is where I'm saying this with love, you know, my women who eat so clean, you know, like this clean eating phenomenon where we are, you know, maybe we're ha even, even any, any, it doesn't, it's diet agnostic. You could be following carnivore, you could be doing keto, you can be doing paleo and you're not salting your food. You are very likely not getting enough iodine. Um, if you're trying to eat a low sodium diet, very likely you're not getting an, you know, enough iodine. This is also true for, um, for people who absolutely abstain from consuming processed foods. These people are actually very susceptible to low iodine because when you are not salting, you know, your whole foods, um, and, and I don't mean like, and I don't mean it that the whole, that the processed foods are somehow good for you. I'm not suggesting that, but it's often when we see this sort of, um, 
picture of a woman who might be aggressively fasting, who might be overly uh, reducing her calories. And I'm going to go on a geeky magic carpet ride around caloric restriction very soon because I see way too many women trying to have this 1200 calorie diet and follow it for years. And it's absolute bullshit. So we're going to talk a little bit about that in, in coming um, episodes as well. But you have this woman who is maybe exercising too, she's doing too much cardio. She's fasting too aggressively. She's eating clean. She's not eating any processed foods. She's not liberally salting her foods. She's very likely going to be attenuating the ability of her thyroid to work properly. So salt your foods. That's not kind of the takeaway from that. The other thing that I think is important is for you to make sure that you're consuming enough selenium. Um, and there are many, um, you know, meat and nuts, very good. Uh, you know, you can get a lot of, uh, uh meat and nuts, uh, the selenium concentration, but Brazil nuts, these are the global, you know, heavyweight champs of, of selenium, if you will. They have, um, uh, I can't recall offhand. I want to say something like 500, uh, microgram, you know, micrograms of selenium in like, call it five or six Brazil nuts. Um, I will fact check myself on that. And if I need to make a correction, I'll put it in the show notes, but yeah, about 500 to 550 micrograms of, of selenium. And so you really want to, um, make sure, you know, we, we often hear like out of an abundance of caution, you know, do this social distancing, wear this, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would like to reframe that and say, out of an abundance of caution, just have five Brazil nuts a day that can really help with your thyroid health. And of course, um, you know, I can really go down like a, a rabbit hole with thyroid, but we want to optimize your detoxification pathways, especially in the liver and in the gut. So, you know, as Dr. Robert Lustig has said on the pod, you know, feed the liver, protect the gut. A lot of your T4, that inactive thyroid is converted to active uh, thyroid T3, both in the liver and in the gut. And of course, that's also going to influence your estrogen metabolism as well. All right. So we talked about thyroid and I think that that's actually some really great actionable steps um, that you can do. In terms of nutrition, um, one of the things that I uh, recommend and you, if you listen to this week's episode with Dr. Stephen Gundry is reducing your lectin intake. So lectins are basically proteins um, that are kind of sticky and they will, um, plants will produce these uh, when they, uh, you know, when a predator, like for their predators to help to discourage their predators from consuming them. So for example, you know, a, a plants can sense their predators. Uh, they know what time of day the predator will attempt to eat them. Uh, plants have been shown to have these clock genes, right? Which will turn on the production of lectins or, um, or chemicals. So we want to be thinking about reducing our lectins. I've already mentioned gluten. That is one uh, lectin, but there are many, many, many other lectins. Like we see lectins in, uh, in abundance in the nightshade family, in tomatoes and um, eggplants. And uh, Dr. Gundry recommends um, if you are going to, you know, quinoa and things like that. And if you are going to be consuming these uh, products, you still can, but you know, with nuts and seeds in particular, maybe you are in seeds like a quinoa, you want to be using things like a pressure cooker in order to deactivate those lectins. So trying to reduce your lectin load, I think is important for healing in the gut. And I think fasting can also be a tool that 
uh, is used for improving um, metabolism. Although I will caution um, my hyper type A Bettys who are like, I'm just going to eat once a day and I'm going to do that forever. You know, women are really not meant to fast the same way every day. I talk about this in my book, The Betty Body, how we should be altering our fasting cadence to match our menstrual cycle. Um, So there are times in your cycle where you are much more attuned and receptive to aggressive fasting, like a longer than a 24 hour fast, let's say. And there are times in your cycle where your insulin profile changes, your nitrogen requirements change, your appetite, um, uh, your hung, you know, your hunger and satiety hormones change. So we can't be fasting all the time the same way. Um, so you can pick up the Betty Body if you want to learn more about that. But fasting can also be a tool um, to help with gut function in particular. Um, so water fasting, bone broth fasting are really, really great for helping the epithelial um, cells in the gut um, as they turn over, because they actually turn over quite quickly, um, to help with the uh, the birth, if you will, of these um of healthy, um, cells in the lining. And then of course, um, when you're following something like the Estima diet, where we have lots of, uh, prebiotics and resistant starches, we are now also feeding the microbiome. We are helping with the production of short chain fatty acids, which will help to repair the gut as well. So to help produce mucin, which is, um, basically like the, it's kind of like the glue or the sticky, um, gel, if you will, that helps to uh, shield from pathogens crossing from the the lumen into the uh, crossing from the inside of the intestines and the gut um, into the into the plasma. Um, so we want to be butyrate helps with the production. And the butyrate is a short chain fatty acid that is produced from the colonocytes following a resistant starch consumption. Um, so that will help with, for example, the production of mucin. It'll help with the production of microvilli. It will help to tighten up those gap junctions that we were talking about earlier. So lots of natural things that you can do. And the, one of the questions I get about thyroid so often is, can someone with hypothyroid do a ketogenic diet? And the answer is, Absolutely, a woman can do uh, a ketogenic diet, a female centric ketogenic diet when her thyroid function is not optimal, but it would be in, it would be taking into consideration all of the things that we've been talking about today. So making sure that, you know, in phase one of the Estima diet, we have that classic female centric ketogenic diet, that 70, 20, 10, but then going forward after you've obtained that metabolic flexibility, and there are ways that we outline in the diet for you when you move into phase two, for you to increase your protein, for you to increase your carbohydrates, for you to slightly lower your fat and then to also times of the month where you need to increase your calories. All of these things are really, really important for thyroid function. And then again, some of the other tools we talked about today, like um, salting your foods, uh, taking some Brazil nuts, you know, it's like nature's medicine, right? Pop five of them in a day. You know that you're getting your daily requirement and in excess of your daily requirement of, uh, of selenium. And, you know, liberally, uh, as I mentioned, liberally salting your foods, some fasting, and then thinking about how we can amplify the, uh, the health and maintenance of our liver and our gut. So lots of things. Uh, so, the, you know, the short answer is yes, 
thyroid, if you have hypothyroid, the ketogenic diet, specifically this female focused ketogenic diet, I think will be very, very useful for you over the long term. And then just even if you don't think that you have uh, a thyroid, uh, you know, a thyroid issue, these are just basic tenets of maintaining organ function, right? Like altering your, altering your calories through your cycle, making sure that you are changing the way that you're fasting. And of course, altering your macronutrients, um, through the cycle as well. So I hope that you found this useful. And, you know, for my ladies, especially my women who've had more than one child, these multi Paris women, uh, these are the women who we are at. I often find like if you've had two or more children, this is where we really want to be cognizant of taking care of our thyroid. And I will also just say that the thyroid is often the last thing to go right? So it sort of sits at the top of the metabolic pile, if you will. And it's only when so many things have become deranged, whether that is, you know, protein intake, caloric intake, salt, uh, you know, we didn't talk about L-tyrosine, but L-tyrosine, selenium intake, uh, you know, your, uh, your movement practices, your sleep practices, your stress management, all of these things have been uh, like out of sync and out of balance for many, many years where the thyroid is like, okay, I need to send this woman a signal, right? So um, the good news is, of course, that it can be restored um, using some of these basic practices. And I always recommend, of course, that you are working with a coach, you know, like myself or somebody else who has a deep understanding of how of women's physiology and how we can be uh, reversing uh, this, uh, this aberrant thyroid function. So I hope that you found this to be useful and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. 